Hey everyone, welcome back to Satellite House. Uh, this week our guest is Dom. Hey, hey. <laughs> um, so Dom, you're you're one of our fraternity brothers, and you're also uh, part of student government here at San Jose State. Um, you've just re- recently been elected. So how how is what are you what are you looking forward to most about being in student government? Um, there's just so many cool opportunities uh, associated with uh, associated students uh, or just the student <laughs> government. Uh, personally, in my role as uh, director of legislative affairs, I get to to talk with like many of the you know the South Bay, the San Jose uh, legislators who uh, I've already had the pleasure of meeting and kind of working with on a few things, um, just kind of uh, predating my role uh, in the government, but also. Uh, working, you know, with my, my fellow students uh, to kind of just do whatever's in the best interest of the of the school itself. Uh, that's something I, I've always really wanted to contribute to is creating a, a more vibrant campus community. So I'm really excited to, to do that. Uh, Dom, tell, tell the audience um, what major you are in college and how that impacted your decision to join Associated Students. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a political science major. Uh, so politics is kind of my my main thing there. Uh, it's something I, it's kind of really started out as like a hobby going into college, but uh, something that's really bloomed into my, my real professional interests. Um, and I've done, you know, a lot of different things within that field, whether that's like uh, staffing, uh, local legislators, or working on some campaigns for city councilmen. Um, and then when it came to associated students, a close friend of mine uh, held this role before me. Um, and he really convinced me that it'd be a really great opportunity uh, to both develop myself professionally, um, but also to be able to serve the school. Um, so uh, within that kind of realm of, of legislation and uh, kind of politics. And so your your main role is to kind of promote legislation to these lawmakers that benefits the student body. Is that is that sort of right or am I totally off? No, uh, that's, that's pretty much perfect. Um, the only thing I, I want to kind of add to that is... Uh, you know, not things that necessarily just uh, improve our, our, you know, or that go to support students, but also things that, you know, the student body is particularly interested in. Like uh, this last semester when I was a student at large uh, on the committee, uh, which the director serves, uh, we were, you know, supporting legislation from, um, you know, supporting uh, undocumented uh, Spartans at our school, undocumented immigrants across the state, and also legislation that kind of uh, hopefully expanded uh, healthcare rights across the state. Both things that don't directly impact higher education, but particularly impact students at our school. Right. Yeah. I see. So, uh, something I, I wanted to ask you, and I think I think I kind of already know the answer is is how does uh how does student government really compare to actual real world politics? Because it sounds like your role in particular very much makes a, a good blend of the both. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. There are definitely parallels. Like um, I was, you know, just kind of thinking today uh, around you know campaign season, which just kind of happened. Uh, there's a lot of schmoozing going on. A lot of people going to different organizations asking for endorsements, uh, and that's obviously something I've been seeing a lot. Uh, working on a political campaign at the same time uh, for city council is people going to these different you know unions and uh, political advocacy organizations looking for an endorsement, and how that's like really really impactful. Um, you know, like candidates, 
you know, not necessarily using the most uh, above board or maybe some underhanded tactics mm-hmm. uh, to go after their opponents. That's something that definitely happens mm-hmm. within a larger political scene. Uh, and then even like voter engagement or voter turnout, you know, the, the June 7 primaries just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, in some races, uh, they're being decided by a couple hundred votes um, because voter participation is really low. Right. Uh, so like, you know, even in these areas of San Jose, where the populations are hundreds of thousands, there was a voter turnout of maybe like 50,000. Right. Um, and it was like really, really tight. Um, it's just kind of interesting to think um, of our own student body, which is around like 36,000. 36, uh, um, and, you know, only around 1,500 of those people vote uh, in an AS election. So it's kind of like a similar turnout. Wow, that's a staggering amount. I will be fully honest i did not vote it's, in wow. those elections wow. thank, thank you for your vote Evan. you're I very really appreciated yeah thankfully <laughs> I Tr- thankfully truth, i was truth unopposed. be told truth be told i don't know how to vote in the elections i don't think that's made clear enough <laughs> yeah i, I did a pretty I, good job like, making it clear i i i knew who i was supposed to vote for and i knew it was the right thing to do to vote but i was like i don't know where i'm supposed to go or what i'm supposed to do that's that's perfectly uh that's perfectly okay evan that's a perspective i'm sure is shared by uh you know obviously uh around like 90 percent of the student body so uh, yeah i think that's perfectly perfectly fine well you know for for our audience listening right now so yeah basically dom is a huge politician he got (laughs) (laughs) on our campus (laughs) <laughs> on our campus um but also he is one of our fraternity brothers here at san jose state i think i think what a little a little behind the scenes information for you guys for the listeners um i put together this week's agenda so the things that i kind of wanted to cover are more political theory things in kind of broad scope um and i i want to preface everything that goes into this episode ahead of time um by saying that what we what we talk about my intention is to purely discuss the hypotheticals and the theory um and not necessarily to place value judgments on any of these things um i'm not trying to tell you whether they're good or bad that's for you the audience to decide and any controversial topics uh we're we're doing our best to stay out of that because that's that's your business um yeah. And you shouldn't be getting your political views from a podcast hosted by a couple of fraternity guys. But I mean, I mean, like being a young person in, in our society, um, it's a good idea to have. We see their issues right now with their political system. Um, it doesn't hurt too bad to talk about some other other stuff about politics. You know, it's not just about two parties and whatever like that. Um, for example, one thing we wanted to talk about is like ranked choice voting um yeah i want it so i wanted to ask you dom because we so we one thing that i well that i view as an issue in contemporary america is that we have such limited choice um because of the first past the post voting system that really incentivizes a two-party dynamic and do you feel that America's voting system should be changed entirely, right? Because a lot of people would say, oh, well, get rid of the electoral college. But that's really quite quite a minimal electoral change compared to the idea of throwing out the way that we do things entirely. Um, and so some of the, the thoughts that I had were like uh, proportional representation for parties or 
like ranked choice voting yeah so just to start off with uh, ranked choice voting i guess because that's something i've been kind of interested in a long time is i i, I really think it's a, a great idea uh i i truly do think that it's uh, pretty bad that we're stuck in this kind of two-party dynamic where people are unable to vote really their conscience because um, you know they're afraid they're wasting their vote, mm-hmm. uh, especially in these really you know big contested elections. So I think ranked choice voting would be like a really excellent first step uh, in allowing people to to vote for someone they really believe in without uh, feeling as though their vote will be wasted if that person uh, you know isn't even close. Well, can you briefly explain to the audience, for those that don't know what ranked choice voting is? Oh, yeah, for sure. So uh, ranked choice voting essentially is a system where uh, any, you know, you have all these people within the race uh, and then you can kind of, instead of voting for one person uh, and say that person is maybe like Green Party or Libertarian, uh, you know, and they have no chance of winning. So your votes essentially doesn't matter. Uh, So instead of that, you can maybe there's a preference there's a list there's a rank so you can put maybe green party first and then democrat second and then you know whatever else libertarian uh, republican uh, or not even necessarily uh, party by you know by chance but it can be each individual candidate like say i like this candidate the best i like this candidate the second best um is it just kind of allows a, a greater diversity of views to be held um it allows more people you know representation there uh and it it kind of it makes it increases the civility uh, of politics, which you know is a detriment. Uh, it can be a detriment depending on who you ask. You know, it makes it so that people can't really be aggressive towards their opponents because they're still asking for that. You know, they're still asking for that person's vote, uh, even if you know they're not their first choice. Uh, some you know counter arguments I've heard. I've ta- I've spoken to some professors about it. Um, you know, a professor I spoke to who I really respect. Uh, kind of talked to me about how uh, he really enjoys, you know, the fact that after a primary, there's, uh, you know, a, a period of time where there's just two candidates and it's just focused on finding the differences between the two. Uh, and he really enjoys that. Uh, he also thinks that, you know, uh, people can't really don't really have all the information to make uh, an informed decision about the real rank or a slate. Um, and it's just kind of information overload. It's kind of a lot. It's much easier for people to find a candidate that they really like and support and just, you know, vote for that one person instead of trying to f- have an opinion on each individual person. Which, right. So you're saying there's pros and cons. of it. There's pros and cons, mm-hmm. but I, I think overall I, I would really like it. I think it's, a, you know, the first step towards a really, you know, more representative mm-hmm. uh, yeah. democratic system where we yeah. break out of this kind of two-party dynamic. Yeah. I think you can solve some of the those those drawbacks of ranked choice voting, like like the idea that you know you um, people maybe don't necessarily know enough um, to to have like a, a specific rank, right? Um, and to just to pick the candidate that they like. Um, I think you can you can still solve some of that by just having proportional representation for admittedly if you do it that way you have to vote for a party and not for a person um which in itself would necessitate even more change in america's political system because we'd have to have a much stricter party system where the representatives have to vote along the party's uh manifesto and not however they feel like yeah for sure um but you know that because then you could just say, I like this party's manifesto and what they say, and that's it. And you just vote for that. Yeah. Um, and I know some European countries have 
electoral systems that are a little bit more similar to that. Um, maybe not exactly that, but incorporating elements of that. Yeah, so. where it's more you're voting the, the party rather than a, a candidate. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, ranked choice voting is something I've, I've really uh, thought about and really uh, thought was a good thing for a very long time. It's one of the first, like, political ideas I picked up. Um, it's something that's being tried in like a few different areas, including like my hometown of Berkeley. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, in kind of local elections. That's where it's going to start. Is like local for sure. Uh, it unfortunately just got you know shot down in the the San Jose uh, Charter Review Commission. So it's not mm. really uh, in San Jose's immediate future, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, something to keep an eye on for sure. What about um, moving on here? What about like proportional representation? Isn't that the same as? voting or what no, is the difference? proportional representation is a little bit different um it's where the legislative body is made up of parties and the the seats that are allocated to them is distributed based on the proportion of votes that that party received in the election mm. um and so, so you i believe Germany does this. I, I believe the UK does it as well. No, the UK oh, has no. first past the post. Oh, okay, never mind. That's why we have it actually. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but uh, I believe the I believe the Germans do that. They have uh, proportional representation. Um, so if you look at like the amount of voters that voted for the SPD, it roughly corresponds to the amount of seats that they have in the Bundestag. Whereas in Parliament in the UK, if you look at the amount of seats that the Conservative Party has, it does not come anywhere near the proportion of voters that voted for the Conservative Party. It, it's the, the Tories are far overrepresented in the United Kingdom. Yeah, so this isn't something uh, I personally have like a ton of uh, knowledge in or have done a ton of research in, but it does sound like you know, an interesting idea in spreading, uh, you know, kind of representation. Um, you know, right now there's like a lot of gerrymandering. This like seems like something that could be used to kind of remedy that a little bit. Is like it's not as much about the the districting, but more about the population in terms of uh, the representative amount, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, you you totally eliminate the possibility of gerrymandering by having a nationwide proportional vote Mm -hmm. Um, because there is no such thing as a district. Um, Something I I kind of wanted to uh, bring up that you had mentioned in passing earlier was you said that in both student government and real government, sometimes there are sort of underhanded or, or dirty uh, politics. And I wanted oh to boy. ask you, uh, do you feel that in order to be a successful politician that, that in some degree it necessitates, uh, kind of walking back on, on your morality or do you feel that, you know, your morality is what makes you a successful politician? Right. So in short, um, I'd say like, yes, uh, I was taking a like a political philosophy class uh, this semester, and and there's a quote from like Socrates where um, I can't I can't quote it verbatim, but it's essentially that uh, the only way to live it like a just life is to live a private life, not a public one, meaning that like uh, it's impossible to live 
you know, a moral life as a public representative, essentially, because you end up having to compromise your personal values to align with what will keep you elected, what will keep you in power. Um, so in short, I think, yes, you absolutely have to, to compromise your morals, your personal morals and able to best represent the people of you know, whatever area or district you're, you're representing. Um, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Honestly, it's it's kind of just it's doing your duty. It's doing your job as a representative. Um, but obviously, it's it doesn't sound great. It's it's not an ideal uh, situation. Um, mm-hmm. But I because you know we can say that we can say that it's you know terrible that people have to compromise their morals uh, in that way. But I've gotten to know a couple representatives pretty well, you know, personally and politically. Uh, who I really look up to, and I think that they do an, an outstanding job uh, of both advocating for the people within their district, but also upholding values uh, of themselves, uh, their personal values. Um, so I think there's a balance to be struck, uh, you know, staying within power, but also keeping your your personal morals uh, as best you can. Uh, but obviously, there's yeah, you can't always do that. Yeah, I think that's that's quite interesting. And I, I, I really would sort of agree with you that, you know, being a, a political representative of any type, whether that's a legislator or an executive, um, you, I, I would tend to agree that you have to compromise your morals in some places. You just, you can't always do what you think is right. You have to do what's kind of what will keep you in power. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, depending on where you live, where, where you choose to represent, um, that, that roughly aligns with your, your personal values. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully every person who is a representative chooses to represent a place, uh, that somehow, you know, correlates with their values or whose people correlate with their values. So hopefully it's not, you know, super distant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, another thing I really wanted to ask you about was, uh, sort of a large trend. And this is, this is very like speculative about the, about right. the future in general, yeah. uh, is that over, over a series of decades, the American populace has slowly over time drifted more and more towards being, uh, aligned with the democratic party. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask you a series of questions sort of revolving around the, the hypothetical situation in which this trend continues. Um, so firstly, if this, if this, do you think that the trend will continue and we'll, we'll start with that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I do think the trend will continue, you know, uh, societies become more and more liberal over time generally uh, unless there's you know big big sweeping changes which I don't think we're in the midst of I don't see anything close to that so I think we'll co- continue to become more liberal more uh, progressive more kind of um, you know hopefully accepting of new ideas that's how I would put it I don't know if that's how you know everyone would put it uh, but I do see that trend continuing uh, I will say I, I have no idea what the world's gonna look like in 50 years uh, just because you know just crazy escalation everywhere mm-hmm. uh it's, it's hard to predict but yeah that's that's how i see it that's how i see it okay so uh using the assumption that the trend does continue mm-hmm. um what do you think is going to happen once the grand majority of 
American politics is dominated by the the Democratic Party. Do you, do you think that the party will split in two? Or do you think that, right, and maybe that would be what we today would call the different wings of the party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe the moderate wing of the party would would separate into its own party and the and the more progressive socialist side of the party would separate into its own party and we would then have a new two-party system or do you think that they would all stick together as one large massive chunk in effect making america a one-party state yeah uh i don't think that's gonna happen i think um that you know uh the conservatives or republicans will do whatever they can to to maintain their kind of you know their their second party in the two-party system um whether that means like kind of becoming more liberal uh in their own right to kind of you know pull some voters from the middle um but i also think that uh the idea of the progressives uh splitting off from the democratic party is just not uh super pragmatic or it's not going to happen very soon that would require uh you know the power of the progressives uh, eclipsing that of the republicans to where they can take that uh position as these the second uh you know the second political party mm-hmm. um you know we talked a little bit about electoral reform earlier so barring something you know big like that that uh really allows for there to be more than two parties i think we're going to stay in a two-party structure and i think uh whether that's the republicans or maybe a more progressive uh democratic wing um which i kind of doubt happening honestly i don't think uh, as the democrats are are growing i think uh republicans would do whatever they can to curb it um and they won't grow big enough to be able to split i think they need to be able to consolidate power i think so I think that's quite interesting because, and th- this is, I mean, obviously I, uh, I, I want to preface this to the audience. I'm no, I'm no expert on, on politics or political theory either. Um, but m- you know, more and more over time, everywhere is turning blue. No, nowhere is turning red, you know? And so, so my thought is at some point, even if Republicans make up a significant portion of the population in total, there just won't be any representation for them in any district. Um, Like they're just, you know, I I feel like eventually there's going to come a point where it's going to be like a, a sort of California style, like the most Republicans in the country live in California but it just so happens that you know that the democrats still outpopulate them and obviously this has to do with the fact that california is just the largest state by population period um but i you know the california government is always democrat the you know the 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 state legislatures both houses of that the the governor the every executive office the the way we vote in the presidency both of our senators are democratic Mm -hmm. and yet we still have the largest population anywhere of republican people and so could could this theoretically happen on a national level or do you think that there would be something that do you think that at that point lawmakers would have to acknowledge that it wasn't truly fair well, it's interesting that you point out that, um, you know, we always have our, our two Democratic senators. Well, we didn't that, always, that, but that recently, right in now, recent history, yeah. yeah. Um, or recent history, we always do. Uh, and that, you know, 
the representation of Republicans is really eclipsed in our in our state legislature. You know, our governor has like consistently been Democrat for a very long time. Uh, but you know, even in a state like California, which is you know run by Democrats, uh, Democrats can't get through all the legislation that they want to in the state legislature. Um, you know that uh, even though you know Democrats hold a super majority, uh, there are people they don't agree all the time. Uh, there are Democrats in more moderate spaces within the country who are afraid of losing their seats. So they don't always vote for, you know, what their more left wing, what their more progressive allies really want all the time. Uh, you know, a keen example is a, a bill I had really had a lot of passion in, uh, AB 1400, uh, which would have been kind of like a, if anyone's ever heard of like Medicare for all across the country, mm -hmm. it would have been kind of like a Medicare for all style system just for Californians where everyone got healthcare regardless of citizenship, citizenship status, uh, you know, whatever they, and you know, whatever your thoughts on that bill are, you can tell that it's a big sweeping change. Um, it's kind of a, a big, you know, left wing thing. Um, and we couldn't get it across. Uh, even with that Democratic supermajority, uh, because, you know, there were so many moderate Democrats uh, who just weren't willing what to. What was this to legislation? Make uh, AB 1400. It what was, is that? Uh, CalCare. It's essentially established a, a single payer, uh, you know, healthcare system across the state. Uh, something, you know, similar to, you know, European countries where uh, there isn't like this, you know, separate health insurance system where yeah, basically it's universal health care but for california right instead yeah. of when the did country. this not get passed um pretty recently in this last uh, legislative cycle it got it got pulled by the author because he knew it, it would it would you know fail on the floor um mm. and he didn't want it to to get kind of embarrassed like that or get kind of bad mm. press uh or force his his democratic colleagues to to vote against it and, and have that be a bad look uh so he pulled it um it must have been like march um, or April around. What was his name? Can we share that? Uh, Oshkara is a representative of the San Jose districts. Oh, okay. Uh, AD 27. AD 27. What is uh, AD assembly, assembly, district. assembly district? Got it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, just, you know, as you can tell, like, even though it is a democratic supermajority, it's not like Democrats can get past anything they want. Uh, there is still an influence on Republicans. And I'd say that would hold true even if we, you know, had a, a supermajority in the Senate, say we get to, to 61 senators and we can finally bypass the filibuster. But we will still have, you know, your your Chuck Schumers, whatever, who um, mm -hmm. will still, you know, kind of use that that power of the, the 61st vote to say, I want this for my state. Um, you know, even if they do have that majority, it's, it's still not, you know, a guaranteed thing. Uh, that Republican pushback is still, you know, pretty uh influential that those those people like joe manchin will still stop things from happening yeah. sorry not chuck Schumer, uh, joe manchin yeah um i think that's that's quite interesting i didn't i never thought about it from that perspective of like you know the these candidates or these these representatives who are in in these in the the major party that has the supermajority are still influenced by their the their constituents in their yeah. district they're um, you know republican moderate constituency for sure mm -hmm. right this past semester you've been educating a lot of our new members of our fraternity as the warden of our uh executive council can you t talk to us about like the importance of like group bonding and like wood projects and pledge classes and what is a pledge class and what is it 
what project? Uh, an associate member class uh, is, is a group of uh, fraternity members that are kind of brought in uh, within, you know, at the same time, uh, usually at a, on a semesterly basis. They have a kind of group designation uh, with that Greek alphabet, like the, the recent theta class. Um, yeah, I think it's I think group bonding is very important. It creates like a sense of buy-in, not only uh, to the organization, the fraternity itself, but also to, you know, their particular group. Uh, it creates, you know, this lifelong, hopefully this lifelong bond, bond for sure. Uh, like my two, um, you know, the the last three members in my in my pledge class, my associate member class, uh, just recently graduated, so I'm the the last one from that. Uh, and it feels a uh, feels a little lonely. Um, those are, you know, two of those mm. three guys were some of my closest friends uh, this past year. Uh, people I, I, you know, could feel very comfortable around, talked about kind of everything with and was, was able to be very vulnerable with. And that's because uh, I've known them longer than, you know, anyone else, not only in the fraternity, but almost anyone else in my college experience. Um, so that's the kind of bond I think is, is really important to grow and is a, a unique opportunity that, you know, a fraternity can provide. What about like the wood projects? So wood projects, uh, you know, that's something that I made my most recent class uh, accomplish. And it's something that I had to do when I was a new member. Uh, I think when you are able to create something and contribute it to that larger organization, it, it further cements that kind of buy-in, further cements your, your, your group identity there. And when you can see it every day, when everyone, you know, all your senior brothers are using it and appreciating it all the time, um, it's a great feeling. Um, and it, yeah. It like teaches you about being part of something bigger than yourself, right, Evan? I think, yes, I, I think I personally believe that the the wood projects serve three functions. Mm -hmm. Number one, they provide something cool for the chapter to use. Yeah. Number two, they teach associate members a practical skill that not not every college student knows how to put together a wood project, you know, some, some kind of like a table or, mm -hmm. or benches or whatever. Like a beer like, dye table. Yeah. Not most people don't know how to do that. You know, at least here in San Jose, right. It's a practical yeah. skill that most urban Californians don't have. It's a and very cool. Skill and to third, have. I, th the, and this is the most important truly is that it, that working as a team make makes you bond you know it, mm -hmm. it 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 really in my opinion you know brings you so much closer together right. and so yeah. i think mm -hmm. i think it's tremendously important yeah it's something we we hadn't really done since my class mm -hmm. uh, it's something i i really wanted to bring back because i i had a lot of pride in our original project in that uh, original die table we made um it was you know the most kind of like uh, artistic, most impressive art, you know, piece of artistic impression I had ever done. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, got to see it every day. We got to use it all the time. I've got to feel that pride in it every single time I, I saw one of my brothers using it. Um, so I definitely wanted to bring something like that back. That was I, awesome. I was always really disappointed that my class never made something like that. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, the reason that we didn't get to do that was because the pandemic happened. And so we everybody went home and nobody was able to, to do all the things that typically happened in the associate member education process. Um, oh, interesting. So you guys crossed on Zoom? Yeah, we did. Yeah, that was funny. It was really, really underwhelming. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, that's, that was the, the nature of COVID. Mm. That's, that's mm. what, and, and, you it, know, chapters all around the country had to, had to deal with that. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's really funny, uh, because you know, the pandemic obviously hit like maybe like three or four weeks into your associate member process. Yeah. So the, you know, the national, uh, the national organization is scrambling to figure out how they're going to do, um, how they're going to tell all their chapters to do their, you know, initiation stuff. Uh, and they have to throw some together on two weeks notice. Uh, and it's that's just, crazy. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's just kind of like a crazy, um, you know, it's just one of those crazy pandemic stories where it's like people just had to kind of figure it out, figure it out on the fly. Cause we, yeah. you know, we have to, you know, we have to get these guys into the organization in two weeks. We, that didn't actually happen. That didn't happen. Ooh, it took, it took no, a little it, longer it than took, that. It took several months yeah. before oh, I wow. was initiated. So I, my class, my associate member class has the longest time being pledges of any class in the chapter well being pledges online margin. isn't really being an associate <laughs> member i mean you that's, know that's fair that's fair being an associate member online isn't the same as being an associate member in person um but it was i think it's in in a way it's even worse because we were at home and so we didn't even have the discord or at the time it was a slack it was a slack um we didn't we didn't we we weren't able to participate in the chapter slack because we weren't initiated oh so we didn't even have that slack. We, oh, couldn't, man. we couldn't even really communicate with the brothers unless we like really knew them on an individual basis. Um, so it was, it was a very disconnected um, experience. It felt like I wasn't even really part of a fraternity at the time. Yeah. And it really led to a, a big disconnect between y'all and your bigs, right? I think, I think maybe one of y'all has like a good relationship with Zwig, maybe like LJ and Walker. Yeah, that's, that's it. I think that's kind of nobody, even, nobody yeah. else. Has. Nobody has a great relationship. So I, I always wanted your position Oh yeah. Um, I always wanted to be warden because I was so disappointed by my experience in with my associate member education process that I had always wanted to ch to mm -hmm. improve on it. No, sh no mm -hmm. shade on my warden, by the way. Like, I mean, it was COVID. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like he he couldn't have done more. He didn't. You know, nobody knew what what to do. Yeah. Um, but it just, I, I was so disappointed with that, that I always, I always wanted to be warden and mm -hmm. each time that an election cycle came around, it just really wasn't in the cards for me to be the warden. Yeah. Um, like the, for the first time, nobody was willing to step up and be the secretary, which is by far the least appreciated position on the executive council probably like the the heart no i wouldn't say it's the hardest but it's like the least uh, it's the least appreciated yeah like no nobody nobody gives any thanks to, <laughs> to the secretary yeah thank you jake him <laughs> thank you guys thank you, jason for all the work that you do um with your beautiful uh powerpoint agendas he does uh, a lot more than that but we don't we don't you. have time to list all his responsibilities yeah, thank you. there are a lot of them um but you know no nobody was willing to do it so i had to step up and and fill the duty ironically the obligation ironically i did the same thing yes i you. i know 
I knew from the moment that I met you that you were going to follow in my footsteps in doing that. <laughs> wow. Um, it, it was just really, I, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I just knew from the moment that I met you that that was going to be your fate. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I did what I felt I had to, and I did what I felt was right, but I didn't do what I wanted, which was to be warden. Um, but uh, I'm I'm glad that the position is in safe hands with you, oh, Dom. Thank you, thank you, Evan. Uh, you know, I know the the biggest complaint about me as warden is that I was too nice. Uh, yeah, and that I will I will accept that. I will, accept sound, that. I will we, publicly accept that criticism um, that I was too nice as a as a fraternity. Yeah, a new member. We we sent out as an exec board. We sent out like um, a feedback form for the whole chapter for how our performance was over the past semester. And Tom's was all very positive, except one criticism, which was that he was just too nice to all yeah. the new new members. And that was even by like my new members. Like, <laughs> you're, you were too you're too nice to us. Like, I can't believe that your own new members yeah. said that. That's wild. Yeah. It was like, no, like unironically, one of them was like, "I expected to be hazed." I <laughs> yeah, like, I was like, "Nope, I'm not going to do that." I think you did a very nice job Thank this you. past semester. Um, something something also very nice we wanted to talk about is some nice restaurants in the bay area uh evan so, so are, i yeah. really wanted to ask you guys both of you about this because you guys are bay area natives you guys are mm. bay boys mm. um and and i'm a i'm a socal person right i'm 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 a transplant to the bay area so i wanted to ask you guys what do you feel are some of like the best restaurants in the bay area to go to um so yeah my my main domain uh is berkeley uh i'd say some some must some must go to spots are sliver pizza it's like a like a vegetarian pizza place mm -hmm. which there are many of in berkeley as you you may imagine uh but i i really love it anyway i i don't even notice a difference um it's it's kind of nice with every order that you have they give you like a half slice of pizza it's a sliver it's like their little oh. thing oh okay. um so the strat when you go to sliver is that instead of like if you're hungry and you want to get like three slices or maybe you just want to get two the strat is to go up to the counter and get one and then they give you a little half one and then you go back and then you get another like single one so you get the little half slice oh, okay okay yeah. so, so, so that's the, the, that's the way the, to play them and yeah, get more free yeah, pizzas yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe they break might, it up into smaller yeah, orders there might be someone uh you know the cashier might catch on and uh, get a little annoyed and not let you do so and uh -huh. uh, not give you that little extra pizza. But that's a, that's the strategy. Well, they must know, recognize you coming twice. Yeah. I think a lot of them just don't care. Yeah. But, like, uh, <laughs> it's not that they don't care, but they just have good hospitality. Yeah. It's part of the community and it's, stuff. It's the experience, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm a valued customer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hustling. They respect the hustle. They respect the loyalty. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I'm not like a big, big boba person, but uh, from what I've heard from people, you know, from other states, is that, you know, Beria probably has like the best boba in the country. Oh, really? I mean, well, I don't know. Like, one of the best for sure. One of the best. Uh, for sure. You know, boba guys. Yeah, boba guys. Uh, You've been to boba guys? Uh, I have not. Oh, you'll I've, love I've boba never guys. heard of boba guys. There's, there, you know, there's various, you know, independent shops like kind of everywhere. There's like, you know, chains like Quickly and boba guys. Yeah, we, like we really got to go to boba guys together sometime. Yeah. I, Tomorrow maybe. A, a, a boba store that I know or that is common in, in the SoCal area is like Happy Lemon. 
Oh yeah, I've seen Happy Lemons. I don't uh, have too many of them up here. That's that's like, that's like a franchise. Not that yeah. it is, it's a chain, yeah. 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 Um, uh, but it, it it tastes fine. Like you'll love Boba Guys. Okay, I'm sure I'll yeah. love Boba Guys. Any other uh, restaurants in the Berkeley area? In the Berkeley area, oh, there's a bunch. Um, there's this uh, Italian spot in Berkeley uh, called Gypsies, I believe. It's been a while since I've been there, but it's Gypsies. Uh, Gypsies, yeah. It's it's like oh, it's so good. It's like really good Italian food. You get like huge portions, like those like uh, you know really absurdly large American portions uh, for like not that much money. Maybe like you know like eleven, twelve bucks for like a big plate of pasta, um, and it's like quick. It's like right yeah, there. Yeah. Like, you get it right away. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of like a you know I don't want to call it like a famous spot but it's a pretty well-known spot in Berkeley a lot of people know about it mm. um, oh top dog is the, the is ultimate, that a hot dog place it's a hot dog place nice. it's the ultimate like late night it's like basically uh, our uh, antihitos um, nice. like instead of Mexican food it's hot dogs it's like a big <sighs> list cash only um, that's where we would always go you know at is it night cheap? When, when nothing else is open it's like it's relatively cheap it's been a while since i've been there but it's like it's like four or five bucks for a dog mm. um and they're they're pretty good Damn. do they yeah. do corn dogs as well they don't do corn dogs i'm sorry evan <gasps> Gasp. It's, I, it's mostly like sausages and stuff okay yeah. i mean it still sounds really good it's, it's a cla- like, it's a classy spot all right no corn dogs too corny yeah um <laughs> i just i i love a deep fried like batter you know i, do, <laughs> oh, I love yeah, deep yeah. fried for sure batter, do you the know, crispy like... bits at the very end yeah has to be crispy yeah yeah um well for me you know um i grew up in the fremont area so i would say that we have more of an asian population down there uh actually fremont has the largest concentration of afghans outside of afghanistan wow so we are actually pretty known for uh, Afghan food. Uh, there's a great restaurant in the middle of uh, Fremont called De Afghan. It's actually on TripAdvisor and other like st- uh, food guides and whatever. So if you're ever in town of Fremont, try out the Afghan food. Um, one other place is Din 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 Ding Dumpling. Basically, it's like a more similar to like Din Tai Fung in Valley Fair. So it's like a lot of dumplings, a lot of noodles, that kind of stuff really 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 good and authentic pretty affordable too so i highly suggest it there's like two locations one in union city one in fremont um what else is there there's pretty good indian food there's like uh have you tried indian pizza no that's interesting i had the the really like not very good indian pizza or like the um chicken tiki masala pizza from like sammy g's (laughs) no that's trash no you guys gotta go to fremont there's a place called bombay pizza okay down the street where i live actually that that place is a freaking amazing um there's like butter chicken pizza mm. chicken tikka masala yeah i was really excited for the sammy g's one because that's like those are like two of my favorite foods is like pizza and curry yeah and i was yeah. really disappointed and i was like like once you go it. indian pizza you you kind of don't go back okay yeah okay uh, i'll definitely it's have to give amazing. it a try then um but but one final thing i got to shout out is um you, you talk about food and that's very interesting because uh the company i work for right now is the um how would you say like the umbrella company or the The parent uh, company company. the the managing the managing company yeah managing company of a bunch of restaurants the high-end restaurants in the bay area um it's actually burmese food um what what they're known for actually is like tea leaf salad which is like an award-winning salad and we're 
on the Michelin guide and stuff, it's really amazing. Lines out the door, super popular. Oh my Highly god, you guys have a Michelin star? We don't have a Michelin star yet. We're on the guide. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, Burmese food. Um, it's most people have not tried Burmese food. Have you guys tried Burmese food I before? I haven't. I really I should. I have not. But yeah. that sounds really I, cool. I, I haven't tried it before. Before I joined this company, and let me tell you, it's the next big thing. Because, yeah. for example, like our restaurants are really designed around, um, like kind of like date night. Like for example, uh. date night. Oh, Japanese food or Burmese food. I mean, chances are you've had Japanese food more than more times than you can't count with your hands, you know, yeah. or fingers. So, um, Burmese food is really nice. It's really salty, savory, and um, sour. Really interesting flavors. It reminds me of Thai food. Mm, okay. Yeah, that I think I, I think I would really enjoy that. I've I you sent me some pictures of some of the restaurants that you're uh, that the that the company owns, and they they look really quite interesting because it's it's like a very like modern fusion of like traditional Burmese sort of themes, but like with a, a very like modern San Francisco take on, on mm-hmm. the aesthetic of that. Yeah. I, I really need to try that because um, as I, as I've told Jake him, I did this big long research paper um, <laughs> on like you know, politics in Myanmar or Burma, uh, however you would like to refer to it. Um, and like, yeah, I, just, I still don't know like uh, a ton of that stuff. It's just super interesting because, uh, you know, Burma, Myanmar has a population size comparable to South Korea. Yeah. Uh, but obviously their place within our culture is vastly different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, you know, K-pop, K-dramas, uh, you know, Korean cuisine is just like so much more influential uh, than say like Burmese. Well, one of the values we have at our company is bridging cultures through food. And most Americans don't really know about Burmese culture or Myanmar culture. So that's why our food is there and it kind of tastes and shares you, tells you about the culture. Um, what are some other like foods we don't have the bay that you would like to see? Well, so this is a question that I put on the agenda because I was, I was thinking about like what things are really like sort of not like really not common here. Like what do we not have a lot of? Um, and it's not to say maybe we don't have any, but like just things that like you really have to look if you want to find it. Yeah. Um, and so, so sort of something that like I, the, the first thing right now that's jumping into my brain is like a good barbecue restaurant. Mm. Um, like, of course you can find them. Um, but the, it's not like common here, you know, yeah. like it's, it's not something that's like really typical um like a good old southern barbecue yeah yeah and you know something that i like i noticed that the bay area has or at least i'll I'll limit it to san jose because i don't want to offend people in the rest of the bay area um the san jose has a lot of vietnamese restaurants we have a lot of japanese restaurants we have a lot of mexican food restaurants um you know just that's sort of things that i see a lot of around here and they're all really good i really enjoy the vietnamese restaurants out here there's you can get a great banh mi in san jose um oh yeah you know but there's just certain things that you just don't get as much out here you know um and i just you know i feel like san francisco has some great barbecue places i've never been but chances are they're the best barbecue probably be around that area yeah i feel like this is a really interesting topic especially for the bay area because we like to think of ourselves as you know the the, the mixing part of the mixing yeah, melting pot, pot where, yeah. where you know 
you can find kind of everything. Um, I don't know. From everywhere. I have, yeah, it, it, again, like I, I'm not a Bay Area expert. I'm not from the Bay and I don't want to say that there's none here, but something that I haven't seen like a lot of or something that I think would be cool to see more of is like Arab food. Mm. Um, I really enjoy like Mediterranean kind of like Greek and Arab food I think is always mm. really like tasty um, and I just don't see a whole lot of it around and maybe I'm not looking in the right places again yeah like I said I, I'm not an expert on the Bay Area but um, no I think you're I think you're right in general for sure uh, it's not you know food I've had like a ton of exposure to uh, even being in you know two of the major Bay Area spots the South Bay and East Bay right you're you're originally from the northeast bay no, right no, like, no one really calls it the northeast bay it's, it it's is the like, east bay. it is the east bay but man you're you're like really up north you're almost more north than you're more north than san francisco uh yeah we're more north than san francisco i don't know the the, the funny thing is that like uh most people from like san francisco and the east bay don't really think of uh the south bay san jose is like bay area yeah, so um yeah. it's not even really like we're north it's like y'all are y'all are south <laughs> yeah um so you're originally from like the berkeley area yeah. um and you go to school in san jose mm-hmm. um in university how, do you see any like cultural differences and if so how yeah so uh something that you know was prevalent where i was growing up uh and it's very interesting for for someone to gain like political insight in uh, as a young person uh, but I grew up in like a somewhat affluent, uh, kind of, you know, m- white and Asian mixed, uh, neighborhood, which is, you know, what I am kind of funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it kind of felt like there, it was very political. Um, and in Berkeley as a whole, I'd say it's pretty political, you know, people, mm. uh, you know, feel the need to have an opinion from like a very young age. Uh, whereas here I've run into so many, so many people who are very comfortable not having one, uh, which is, you know, I'm totally fine with, I'm totally for, um, it's just where, you know, where I was from, it was like, you know, kind of have, have an opinion and have the right opinion, kind of fall in line almost, um, which, you know, is, is, yeah, it's just kind of different. Uh, that's something that stood out to me as like a, a political science person. Uh, other than that, I can't draw too, too many distinctions. Um, obviously, college environment is very different from like a, like a growing up, like high school environment. Uh, the people that are here are, are much different. Uh, but that's the, that's the big one for me. Okay, so maybe maybe it's a San Jose culture thing to to kind of be okay with not having political opinions because when yeah. I when I moved from LA, that's something that I noticed as well. Mm-hmm. Is that in where I grew up, you know, it's it's very much like everybody makes you very well aware that they're Democrats and that they vote Democrat and that they believe in Democrat policies. Um, And here, even if that is true for those people, they don't need, they don't feel the need to make you aware of it. Yeah. I feel like most people in San Jose don't need to discuss politics. Like it's not, it's it's not, (laughs) There's no like this. It's like the visceral need to to discuss that you know that I really grew up around, Um, and I think that's something that's a little bit quite different here. Yeah, I feel like in San Jose, you know, you're either you're kind of like you're lower income and you don't really care about politics, or you're an immigrant and have no vote and you don't care about politics, 
or you're kind of like you know upper upper middle business class and you know the the political discourse is like just fine for you so you don't really care um that's kind of been my my little experience you know there's obviously pockets here and there uh it's been kind of weird navigating but yeah i don't know i think it's something that i really liked about living in san jose Mm -hmm. because i think it it gets a little bit anxiety inducing to Mm. always have to have an opinion Mm. on everything yeah um to constantly have to keep up with 100 percent of the news and what's going on and have to have an opinion immediately yeah as well it's not you don't even get time to form an opinion (laughs) no yeah something that's definitely very deeply ingrained with me um and i talk about this with um, walker one of my close friends like all the time is i feel the need to know everything and when i don't know something i feel like very very embarrassed um and i guess that's only like compounded by the fact that i like hold like a you know like a leadership position Mm -hmm. I, i should know like everything about politics like you know, uh, state, local, federal, international, uh, but I just kind of have to get comfortable knowing that like that's impossible. Um, just kind of like doing my best. I do my best to uh, to avoid American politics when I can because I I just find it all really quite depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, I find international politics interesting, and I I, I don't know maybe I, I I'm sure there will be somebody who's listening to this episode who will say that that's, you know, me coming from a point of privilege because then I don't have to, it's, there's a degree of separation between me and what's Mm. happening internationally. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I find it's a lot, I don't, I don't know, you know, it's just the things internationally to me capture my attention more Mm -hmm. Whereas things that are happening in my own backyard tend to just make me feel sad. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hate to, I hate to make it like sound, I don't know, like belittle, I guess, but like, yeah, international things are bigger. There's higher stakes. Uh, it feels almost like, you know, almost more like, like a movie or something rather than, um, you know, talking about, uh, the dumping policies. It's like uh, a fucking sitcom. A, yeah. You know, dumping policies in a particular area of a city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or something kind of you know small scale like that. For well, sure. well, speaking of small scale and stuff, you're you're involved in student government. Would you say that that's like a accurate reflection of real life politics? I know that you started a new job with a local congressman. Do you see like a similarity or any differences between the two, student government and real life politics? Yeah, I think eh, there are some. Um, it's definitely quite quite different. You know, the higher up you go, the higher the stakes are, and I'd say. A student government uh, at a university is, you know, somewhat low stakes. Like, you know, obviously, half the positions on the board went unopposed, um, and that's not, you know, uh, that's not for the same reason as people go unopposed in in city or state elections where there's someone that everyone likes and no one really wants to oppose them or be too much work to oppose them. It's because of a lack of interest, and it's not to say that anyone who went unopposed or anyone on the board is uh, unqualified. Uh, but it's to say that there is a lack of interest um, and there, you know, could be a higher quality of candidates, frankly. Uh, I think I'm a pretty qualified person, but I, you know, I think there's many people that are really smart. I frankly don't think I'm the smartest person in my department. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, the best advocate in the world. Uh, but that's just, you know, something that's kind of unique is that it's not I, the I, highest I, echelon of people. I really want to ask you is 
student government filled with just a bunch of political science majors? No, it's it's actually not. Um, our president, uh, Nia Chuang, uh, is actually a nutrition major. Um, and before her uh, was Anup Kaur, who uh, I I don't know exactly what she was. I believe she was a STEM major. I'm positive she was not a political science major. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you just kind of look around. There aren't as many as you'd think, uh, even though that's something that you'd think a lot of political science majors would really want to get their hands on. It's like, oh, wow, a student government position. That's something great for the resi. Um, but there's, you know, there's people from all over the place, people from business, um, doing, you know, financial stuff. There's people from, you know, HR or like that HR. kind of stuff doing like comms. Um, yeah. And even yeah. like I said before, uh, a nutritionist is our, our president. Well, I think, I think that's really quite interesting because it's not what I expected. I certainly yeah. expected that there was going to be a lot of, a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, aspiring political science majors yeah. who, who are, you know, thrilled to put this on their resume. Right. So that way, one day when they run for the, their first local position, mm-hmm. they'll be able to say, I have this experience yeah. running for student government and it's, being in student government. It's blah, really blah, blah. funny. Um, I, I love Nina, but she, she doesn't know like a, a ton about political stuff and she'll, she'll tell you that herself. Like she'll ask me about like, you know, some stuff having to do with, uh, you know, the national whatever, like, oh, like, how is this, you know, can you do some research on this bill? Like, how's it going to go? And I just have to be like, yeah, so the way the Senate works is that it's 50-50 and nothing gets through. Uh, Nothing gets through our legislature. And she's like, oh, okay. So she clearly, uh, she doesn't have like a lot of political knowledge or ambition. She's just doing what she can do to to help the school uh, Mm -hmm. in the way that she sees possible. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for a lot of you think for a lot of the people in student government, it's really much more about the campus community and and how actually helping the students than yeah. trying to to mimic real life politics. Oh, yeah, I'm, for I'm, sure. I'm sure there are universities out there where mm-hmm. it's it's very different. competitive and it's all yeah. about the, the mimicking real world politics right. and this yeah. and that. Um, I, I think that's really comforting to hear that here at this campus that that it really truly is more about what what can be done to help the students yeah i think everyone's there for for the right reasons uh, is my knowledge if anything um my my position tends to be dominated by political science majors and it's for those like connections and stuff and um y'all oh. just have to y'all just have to trust me that i have uh, good intentions <laughs> in my role, and i'm not just doing I, it for the resi i i hmm. i don't think you're doing it for your resume yeah i well, part of your job, um, I've heard that you travel to all the other CSUs. Have you done that yet? I haven't done that yet. That starts pretty soon. So uh, it's referred to as CSSA. Uh, it is kind of a meeting of all the different uh, director of legislative affairs and the associate student presidents from all the CSUs. They get together. They talk uh, legislation that they want to endorse and support. Uh, and that happens monthly. Pre pre COVID, uh, it would be in person every time. It would be in a different, uh, it would be at a different CSU every time. You know, we get to travel everywhere. Uh, during the pandemic, the last two years, poor Walker never got to never got to go on one of these trips, even though he was really looking forward to it. Um, but now, now that we're kind of getting out of the pandemic, hopefully, we're going for every other every other CSSA uh, plenary meeting mm. is going to be in person. So uh, how do they, how do they decide which CSUs get to host? So uh, I believe there's like a dedicated order. Uh, well, there's, there's some that are dedicated and some that aren't. I believe that long beach is like always the first and maybe SAC is always the last Sacramento. 
Um, this this year, we're actually going to be hosting one of the in-person ones, hopefully. Uh, yeah, which should be super cool. Very, very weird for myself. I think there's going to be a lot that goes into that uh, on my side. Um, but it should be interesting for sure. Uh, yeah, just kind of these in-person meetings of all these different uh, political people from all over the state uh, talking about, you know, the, the interests of their students, the interests of the, the CSU as a whole. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to just like make connections, but also, uh, you know, really decide what is best for, you know, higher education for uh, Cal State students as a whole. I think that's really quite fascinating that you're able to, or that you have the opportunity to do all of that. Yeah. And I'm sure it's all paid for. It is all paid for. It's so great. that's yeah. thrilling. Uh, you get to go on not vacations to yeah. <laughs> Humboldt County and, and, yeah. and San Diego and all these interesting mm-hmm. places, but you also have to go to some places like Fresno and Bakersfield that are really yeah, we'll quite see. dull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see if those those get in-person ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so word to the wise, anyone, uh, do AS stuff. Uh, run, yeah. run for it. There's a lot of great benefits. Travel for free. Yeah, exactly. It's really cool. All over California. Thrilling. Yeah. California is a really, really diverse state, Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of leads into the next topic that I'd like to discuss is is sort of California culture in a broad perspective of, you know, how, how to, you know, when, when people, I think when people think about California, they mostly just think about the two major metropolitan areas of the Bay area and LA. Yeah. Um, LA, San Diego. Yeah, 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 but like they, they're yeah, like combined like into what San, Di- you know, San like, Diego is like to LA as like almost like Sacramento is to Bay Area. Exactly, of, yeah, it's it's, it's like, like a satellite yeah. part of the metropolitan area, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and I I think people don't really know or understand some of the more far flung places in California, like Redding or eureka or like yeah you know these these places that I, I didn't even i've, I didn't I've even been really there heard i've been one. to redding you know a lovely place is i went it, to eat at an nice? outback steakhouse there <laughs> yeah um, oh, wow it was, it was just a pit stop Brilliant. because we were going to oregon to see crater lake mm-hmm. um but no you're right yeah, I so think, they're pit stop locations yeah they really, they really yeah. are i'm gonna be honest like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they have great scenery, like if you like nature and like hiking and like lava beds or whatever. Um, Northern California is a beautiful place, but no, you're right. Like for the average international person or person outside of California, they think of Silicon Valley, Hollywood, you know, things that are Bay Area and L.A. But what we wanted to ask you or or talk about is, uh, I don't know. Just being three boys from California, like, what are the differences between the urban coast and the rural east? Uh, I think, um, in general, uh, SoCal people, LA, San Diego people are much of what people think of when they think Californians. Uh, these kind of, like, really, like, laid back for the most part, you know, like, I don't know, like, beachy people, um, just, you know, big, big stoners, whatever. And of course, we get that, you know, in NorCal. But you know what? I think the true like that that cliche of like a a big stoner laid back beach person yeah i think you get most of that on the central coast really okay i think i think that's the peak of that right Uh places like santa barbara and like 
San Luis San Obispo, Luis Obispo and its surrounding areas. Even places. Santa Cruz. Like, yeah, even Santa Cruz. I love Santa Cruz. It's, okay, it's yeah. more of those places, I think, in the middle, in between the Bay Area and, and L.A. Yeah. That you get those true California cliches. Yeah. I think, um, um, yeah, for sure. I think the Bay Area is very much the heart of that, you know, idea of like a, like California liberalism. Um, yeah. or I don't, I don't know. Maybe you could talk a little bit about LA, but I think p- people definitely think SF. People definitely think Berkeley. I think the Bay Area is definitely more the political heart of California. Like yeah. that's that's when people think about what California politics is. I think they're definitely thinking of the politics of a Bay Area person. Yeah. And maybe when they think about culture, maybe. the lifestyle, yeah. they think about a Southern California yeah, person for sure. Um. And I, I think it's really interesting the way that California is sort of viewed from, you know, like an outside lens. Mm-hmm. Because we we think of ourselves in very separate, distinct cultural regions. Mm-hmm. But obviously, people who have never been to California kind of just like lump us into the same group. Mm-hmm. And so, they, they meld all these things together that we would be like, no, we're not like that at yeah. all. You know, I... You know, the, the, and even within, like, somebody who lives in LA doesn't live the same life as somebody who lives in Silicon Valley because yeah. Silicon Valley is all about tech startups and there's all this entrepreneurship and there's all these people who are working like 80 hours a week for a huge tech company and, and, and shit like that. And they're all a bunch of STEM people. And you don't find anything like that in LA. That is not an LA. Like, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how little of that there is in LA. <laughs> that's not that's not the LA lifestyle. Um, and I think you know, it's it's they're such we like we as Californians think of them as totally different worlds, mm. and other people. Like I, I have friends in other parts of the country and they might think of it as all one and the same. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, I'm working as like an orientation leader and obviously uh, within that team, it's, it's, you know, a diverse group of students, people from all over the state, uh, people from NorCal, people from SoCal, Bay area, San Diego, Santa Barbara. Um, we recently had like an intern come in from, from Massachusetts. Uh, and you know, I was kind of talking to her and she was just like, yeah, y'all, are, y'all are also crazy. Like you crazy Californians. Oh, how are you're we also, crazy? Y'all, you're all, y'all are so weird. What? Um, how are we weird? I, I don't know. Bro. Well, have to ask her, wait, intern from Massachusetts. Yeah. Don't worry. An orientation leader. That's, that's really an surprising that, that somebody would choose to go to university in San Jose of all places when Massachusetts is really known for its quality of universities. Oh, she, no, yeah. She's not going to, she's not going here. She's just uh, interning here for the summer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. She's a grad school student. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I, Cause I was like, I don't know why anyone who would want to do their hey. undergrad. Hey. <laughs> I mean, we love san jose state it's, it's not because like i'm not trying to, to throw shade on san jose state it's just that like massachusetts has this reputation of yeah. being no, home yeah, we to it, like yeah. the universities that are like the top in the yeah, world like, For sure, like yeah. boston college or like mit harvard, MIT, harvard Yale, Northeastern. Like all, the, all those places that yeah. are totally, totally in the in the northeast and i i'm yeah i would just be really surprised yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. we wanted to um talk about well we, i guess we're done with that topic right yeah 
Yeah, we wanted to talk about like transit in the Bay Area. Yeah, something, um, something I really want to talk about this too because we, me and Dom, we, we both work jobs or internships, if you want to call it. And on our commute, we take public transportation. Yeah. Um, BART, Caltrain, VTA, Rail, Muni, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. VTA bus, you know all that. Um, BART versus Caltrain. How come? How come BART is run like the way it is? Um, and you, you explain to us the state whatever, of BART whatever, for whatever do you mean the international <laughs> <laughs> whatever do you the, mean whatever the international like like listeners that do not know what BART old stands from for like the seventies yeah like, <laughs> um yeah honestly yeah I don't really know much else uh I you know I like BART it's like a very integral part of um like Bay Area culture is like. You hop on Bart train, take a trip to SF, take a trip to Berkeley, uh, Oakland, go to the go to the A's game, and just stop right there. Take it to the to the airport. Uh, you know, maybe if you have a, a job or something, you can take it there. Um, it's you know something something I love. I, w- I would always be taking trips on Bart. Um, you know the way it's run. Uh, Evan can draw more comparisons between it and other transit lines than I can, but obviously uh, it has issues. The way I like to put it um, is, you will always leave bart with a story um yeah something always happens to you when you're <laughs> on the so bar train crazy. yeah it's kind of wild you know de- i was gonna say depending on the time of day but really like uh i'd be taking trips home to berkeley you know at like two in the afternoon and still i get some some wild some wild shit happening can i can i share some crazy bart stories sure go yeah. for it i'd um, love to hear it it was this week actually it was earlier this week i was coming yeah. home from oakland from work um this this guy that was on the BART that sat pretty close to us. Um, I already mm-hmm. saw him, kept my eye on him because through that whole ride he was like doing some crazy stuff. He kept getting up and yeah. like you know finicking. And no, like normal BART things. Normal normal BART weird person behavior. Yeah. Um, but then like about twenty minutes after we sat down, um, he brings out an apple. Mm. Mm, apple, but not to eat, not to eat an apple. He he basically used the apple as a bong. It put marijuana in it it smoked marijuana outside uh, from the bong and it started like you know the whole carriage smelled smelled like marijuana so then me and my friend we had to uh move change carriages because the marijuana smoke was so strong damn you didn't you didn't just hang out in there it smelled really really it was like super cheap terrible weed yeah it smelled awful yeah and then yeah. everyone else ran out but that's funny i i don't feel safe at bart i'm gonna tell you that you're, you're so right about that whole you always leave bart, with, always the story. Leave bart with the story yeah. yeah 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 if i could share like one of my one of my standout ones um i was just kind of sitting in a station it might have been like fruitville or, or hayward or something um and suddenly like five people like run in uh run into the train um mm-hmm. and i was like oh like that's kind of weird um but before that, before they ran in, there was like a little announcement over the intercom, like, oh, the, the train will be indefinitely stopped here. Oh. Um, and then I was like, oh, that's really strange. Uh, I really like to get home. It's kind of late at night. Uh, and then these people, they start talking like, Bro, like, just come on, come on. Like, oh, like, like what, what are you doing? Like, just act normal, whatever. Um, and then eventually, I, I think I like kind of realized what's going on. They're like, oh, my God, like, wait, they wouldn't stop the train, would they? Like, oh, my God. Uh, and then eventually, I, like, it kind of stressed. I'm like, fuck, like, what do these people do? And I just, like, I just tell them, like, hey, they said they're stopping the train. Uh, and then they, they all said, like, what? Yo, they're stopping the train? And I was like, yeah. 
So they all like look at each other like, okay, we got to go. And then they just run out. They just run down the stairs. Um, and then two minutes later, the, the doors close and the train starts going. I was like, oh my God. Okay. They probably like- Presumably fare evasion. No, they wouldn't stop the train for fare evasion. These people were like this on some the crime. Run. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. That's, yeah, that's fair evasion happens all the time. Oh yeah, all the f- you'll, every, you'll see one. You'll see one jump the jump the gate every like, time. Every, every single every time, time you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is another reason why you know another issue with Bart and why it's like not proper. Yeah, they don't enforce it. Like um, what the hell, man? Yeah, not great. I would never jump Bart. I I don't know because I I know on Caltrain the policy about fair evasion is much more strictly enforced. Oh yeah than on bart mm-hmm. um i i remember one time i was taking the caltrain up to san francisco and the the guard came through and he was checking tickets and this the and that guard <laughs> i mean because imagine I mean, having having security a, a train on your transit oh my <laughs> the, God. the conductor or whatever you want to call yeah, him yeah, like yeah. because he's it's I don't know. In my mind, a conductor is is the sort of person who runs more of like the the hospitality side of the train, right? They like if you're like on an Amtrak train, this would be the sort of person who like is in charge of all the the, the you know the dining times at the dining car and this and that. So so that's why in my mind he's a, a guard, car. not a not a conductor. But yeah. no, I mean like. Um, the moment you step on like so i take the caltrain to work every day okay, yeah. rather than bart now because you know bart is freaking in like an insane asylum but yeah the moment you step on the caltrain and you sit down you can already feel the difference and why it's better than bart i mean first of all you can actually understand the conductor that's talking over the intercom like next station <laughs> this is uh the train going to san francisco whereas bart's like that's that's very true the the quality of the intercom system on bart is so bad yeah um there's some new cars where it's better like oh yeah the new the new trains are are better but if you get in like one of the original bart trains yeah you cannot understand a fucking word that they're saying imagine being a first-time writer like you have no idea where the hell you're going because you go on it's like well i mean like there there there's maps in the cars and then like you can see the sign from your window of where you are and and it should the station usually has signs that tell you like the train that's showing up on the platform now is going to this destination Mm -hmm. um so you you should be able to theoretically figure out where you're going to end up even if you can't understand what what the announcer is saying but yeah no you're you're absolutely right the quality is very different but i i also think it's different in terms of the service level and the service type um because bart runs a lot later than caltrain does mm-hmm. and that's you know, something bart that's has, nice as bart, well bart well, you, has a restroom yeah you know bart, the whole the entire car was <laughs> yeah. Like yeah i was about to say <laughs> yeah that's something we got you beat yeah, yeah you're, right, got you you're beat. right the whole every seat is a toilet yeah. if you're on the bart um <laughs> oh god but okay so i want to ask you dom are you excited for bart to be extended to san jose oh yeah i was just i just wanted to get into that um it's not going to happen in my you know you know time here as a student uh it's currently you know scheduled for 20 2030 but uh there were some recent uh you know uh, delays uh concerning with uh yeah even more delays 
concerning like uh, price projections not lining up. Uh, so they actually have to like find like two billion dollars somewhere, uh, or else they can't move forward with their their building process. So I think a more likely uh, projection is like twenty thirty two. This is me as like a like a random person, uh, based off like the stuff I've read. Uh, it's just it's just, uh, it's been such a long process. I'm not going to get to see it. I really hope that someone gets to see it and then get get, get to uh, appreciate it because uh, with all of Bart's flaws. Uh, it's really, you know, it's how I get home. Uh, it's how I get around the bay. I think it's, I think it's still a wonderful service, uh, and I hope sometime it, it gets to San Jose, uh, so the rest of the rest of the Bay Area can um, experience the joys of, of downtown SJ. Wow, um, the, the thrilling, yeah, and go go to Sharks games. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Got that. Yeah, and, and people from you know Fremont. And st- I know there are people from Fremont that uh, commute to San Jose State. That's true. Um, yeah, and they could absolutely utilize that. You know, who knows? There might be people from from where I'm from, from Berkeley, who who want to take the bar train to to the San Jose, the downtown San Jose station. Every I morning. I think it definitely would have been beneficial for me. Yeah. Um, living in San Jose, I would I would have loved to be able to have the BART and to go to be able to go anywhere in the East Bay, Absolutely. to be able to go in through San Francisco, mm-hmm. to be able to get to SFO um, without having to make a weird connection from Caltrain to the BART anyway. Yeah. Um, I think that would have been really, really nice um, during my time here. Obviously I'm not going to, I'm not going to benefit from that either. Yeah. How cool would it have been if you could just, just decide one morning, I'm gonna go on a trip to SF with my friends. Yeah, you know, because that's what I that's what I used to do back home. Like on a, on a random day, like, hey, let's go to SF. Uh, and that's not you know that's not the easiest thing to do uh, right now. Is that the plan though? Um, for a bar to link up with Caltrain, so then it makes a full circle around the Bay Area. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's what they want to do. It's a very far off uh, goal, especially mm. with the delays in the in the San Jose mm. project. Um, will Bay Area ever integrate fares? What does that mean? So there uh, there is a campaign called Seamless, Seamless Bay, Bay Area, Area. Um, that wants to integrate like twenty eight transit agencies or something like that to oh. all have integrated fares. So that there would be fair zones based on your location instead of like just fares based on whatever the trans agency decides. So if you have to take a bus and BART and, um, you know, like another bus to get to your work or something, you don't have to pay like three separate fares. It would just be one singular fare. Yeah. Mm. Or like it would mean that. So if you theoretically we'll we'll talk about it as if it was in 2036 or whatever yeah um if you started at san jose deridon station and you ended up in san francisco it wouldn't matter whether you took the caltrain or whether you took the bart the long way around yeah your fare would be the same because you started at the same point and you ended at the same point and this is the way that it works in pretty much every european city um, in London, they don't do things based on whether you like took one transit line or another or a bus or this or that. It's all just one integrated fare. And it just makes sense. It makes so much more sense. Um, admittedly, admittedly, that's kind of not true because the buses have the buses don't have any fare zones. And they just all cost the same. Mm. 
no matter where you are in London, it costs one pound fifty for a bus ride. And that's it. Period. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter whether you go from the center of the city to the total outskirts, it's always one pound fifty. Um whereas like the tube, it's it's all about fare zones. And mm-hmm. and Paris has fare zones, most like Berlin has fare zones, Oslo has fare zones, everywhere has fare zones. Except for America. <laughs> wow. We're really slacking. Huh? We really don't do yeah. this. Um, and I, I think it would be so smart to do this because it, it also really incentivizes travel much more like local trips. Yeah. Because if you're within one zone, then the chip is the trip is cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, like in in LA they don't have fare zones. You get a flat fare on the Metrolink no matter what. So whether I'm traveling locally one stop or whether I'm traveling all the way to the other end of the system, it's like 10 bucks. Damn. And so that would save me a lot of money if I wanted to just take the train from my local station one stop over. Yeah. Yeah. It would also kind of, um, it would, it would force these transit agencies to, create um you know stops and stuff that actually makes sense with people's schedules because you know as it exists right now you might take the bus to bart have to wait like 15 minutes for your train and then you know wait another 15 minutes for your next bus uh you know if they were all integrated it would kind of force them to create schedules and stuff time transfers that that make make a lot of sense for people uh, so people don't, you know, have to get up at like two hours early for their for their commute, and maybe just you know. I think hour. that's one thing that I was that I've always been really bitter about in yeah. as somebody who takes public transit, um, is that there's very infrequent service, and so you end up having to wait an ungodly yeah. amount of time for uh, a service to come around. I where I grew up, it was like. A one bus every hour so if you missed the bus you were screwed that's it it's over like you have to sit there for another hour um and like the the longer the intervals with something like that the earlier you kind of have to get there right yep because the more it's like the more uh the more fucked you are if you miss it the earlier you have to get there to make sure you hit it yeah and i i think one of the things that i hated the most too is if if the bus would get there early and leave early um because then you could be there on the scheduled time and you're still fucked yeah um and that that had that has happened to me on a a few occasions and that oh god i fucking hate that so do you have any anything else that you wanted to talk about dom any, uh, any kind of last yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I don't have any like more discussion topics. Uh, I just think it's gonna be kind of funny uh, with what I'm currently wearing. People are gonna see the thumbnail and think like, "Why do they have on this random homeless person?" Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I hope it'll be a, a funny uh, difference uh, when they actually listen to it. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much for sh- for coming on. Um, I. I was really thrilled to have you on the podcast as I think you're a very interesting person. You're a person I really enjoy talking to. Um, and I think we would be very happy to have you again um, sometime in the future. Um, if you're open to that, of course. Um, 
So I'd like to thank all of our listeners for listening this week and we'll see you next, uh, next time, you know, for further on from that. So, um, thanks everybody. Uh, like comment, subscribe on our YouTube channel. Uh, follow and like on Instagram and, and listen on Spotify or Apple podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for having me.